0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Courtside with Beelance in Tennis episode. I am super, super fired up for this guest. It is with great privilege to have with us on tonight a Grand Slam Doubles champion, teaming with his younger brother, a college All-American at USC. He's been a tennis analyst on ESPN. He was the coach of the Syracuse University women's team for over seven years. He's involved in world team tennis. He's also the current director of racket sports at the Westside Tennis Club in Forest Hills, New York. Basically, he's been involved in pretty much every aspect of the sport of tennis. Please welcome to the courtside with Beelins and Tennis Pod, Luke Jensen. Luke, thank you so much for taking some time tonight and walking us through your tennis journey.
1: Coach, anything, man. Anytime talking
0: tennis is the best time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't have to worry about you uh, bringing the energy because I've I've heard you, I've heard your brother speak. We're not going to have to worry about lack of energy here, so I'm fired up and I know you are too.
1: At uh, any time, honestly, that of all aspects, I know you love tennis and coaching it, playing it. Uh, we're lifers, and it's just great to get on and, and just talk about our
0: experiences and, and where the game's going. Well, so, you know, you have so many cool experiences, and we're going to get into that. But before we get into that, just give us a, a, a present day, where you at right now?
1: Years of history from Renee Lacoste and Bill Tilden, and uh, you yeah, have unbelievable uh, legends like Althea Gibson broke the color barrier here uh, 70 years ago. Next year we'll be celebrating that. Rod Labor won his last calendar grand slam 50 years ago. So I get to basically be part of history every single day. The same clubhouse, the same stadium. We still have concerts there. The Beatles landed up. Helicopter there to play in 1954 on Grass Court 3. Hendricks played there, Sinatra. Uh, Leonard Skinner played this year, Jethro Tall, B 52s, one of. Um Competing glass
0: concerts were here in Forest Hills Stadium, so the place is alive and kicking. Oh my god, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean I know it's been around for forever um, and I know on the tennis front it's been you know, all that historical um, nature of all that, but I did not know it also hosted all those incredible events, so that's super, super cool. Um, yeah, no, it's it, it, uh, we have eight grass courts still, we have red clay, green
1: clay, hard courts, turf, and I'll be out there in the middle of the <laughs> from you know, like Zeppelin was about to play that night, he plays a lot of tennis. So, you have all these mix of rock and roll stars and these amazing tennis players, coming, like Connors and Mathano for outings. And it, it's really, it's like Americans Wimbledon.
0: That's crazy, crazy, crazy cool. So, here's what I want to know your father played in the NFL for the New York Giants. And yet, your tennis, you're a huge, huge tennis family, not just a huge tennis family, huge, successful tennis family. How did that all get started?
1: Honestly, a small town in Ludington where we grew up, and there was a, a local you know, area where these people came in from Chicago and throughout the Midwest and throughout the United States, the resort. It's a small resort town in uh, small town Ludington, Michigan. And this, this guy, Dr. Slagin, had a son, He was a two-sport athlete. He was the uh, starting quarterback at Notre Dame and was an All-American at Notre Dame for tennis. And uh, my dad talked to Dr. Slager about, you know, I had my kids, I wanted them to football, was the best sport outside of football to get them groomed to become fast and strong. And Dr. Slager said, well, my son is a two-sport athlete and tennis really helped his footwork. And so all of a sudden, we become. come, I'm sorry, and my dad becomes the uh, high school tennis coach there for 38 years, and so I grew up kind of in a culture of tennis, football, baseball, all these sports. But you don't really see a youth to
0: that, right? Did your dad pick up a racket when he was a kid?
1: Oh, you no, know, no, just as an adult.
0: Right, late to the game. He uh, loved individual sports. You know, football. You can be
1: an all-pro, an all-American, all everything. But you have ten other guys on that side of the ball that have to do their job too and he really he loved football but he loved boxing and he loved the individual sports and tennis was was just that kind of competitive mindset and he really taught us to really embrace the
0: one-on-one competition right no super super cool and obviously he had competed at a very high level in his respective sport so he had that gift that he could pass on um, to, to all of his kids which is super cool to have um, let's kind really, of Go ahead It wasn't
1: his forehands
0: and backhands To be perfectly honest
1: It was How to be a better
0: competitor Right How to compete it knows, it knows that, that, yeah, that, that mad dog mindset That you have to have At 15, 30
1: Four, five In the third And you're hitting a second serve And You know You have to mentally Get around that pressure And eat it And eat it up And You lose I think that was the main mindset that my mom taught me and my dad taught me both were uh, athletes growing up my mom
0: Such a gift to have that as your parents. Yeah, absolute gift. So you know when we were talking prep, this is pretty wild. Your junior career, you actually did play high school tennis, and you won the Michigan State singles championship. I believe it was nineteen eighty three. Um, yeah. The next year, eighty two. I'm sorry, eighty two. Yeah. And the next year, or, or maybe it was your junior year, or senior year. You're the number one junior. Player in the world, not the country in the world. And then and, I, and again, during prep time, we were joking. I'm like, man, you got to be the only one. And you said, hold on right there. We had another guy, Aaron Krikstein, who basically did the same thing. That's pretty crazy to have two guys in the state of Michigan to, you know, one, play high school tennis, win their high school state tennis title and also be as high as, you know, the best player in the world.
1: There, there are a couple of dates in there that, you know, from 82 when I won state, I was number seven in the world as a 17 year old uh, in the junior set, the semis of the U.S. Open. Played Decker in 83, got to play Edberg and all those guys. And then 84 was my year, 83 was Crickstein's year. And so, you know, I remember, high school kind of, tennis is huge in Michigan. And the guys, especially in the 90s, the people that played high school tennis. Kind of, and went under the pros like Mount Washington, Todd Martin, my brother, myself, Craig We were really loaded because the tennis boom of the 70s basically created this monster of the 90s of all these great players. We were all top 10 in the world in the 90s. Crazy. the Michigan could have had its own Davis Cup team and competed against anybody on the
0: planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. So, Malavai was a couple years younger than you. Malavai was Murphy's age, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Two, uh, two,
1: two and a half years younger, Grown up in Michigan, Flint. Todd was out of Lansing, Crixie out of Detroit, and Murphy and I out of Grand Rapids and Ludington on the west side of the
0: state. Unbelievable. So, here, I got to ask this question, okay? Murphy's two years uh, younger than you. You know, speaking on my own, I'm a younger brother. Now, when you played against your older brother, I mean, were were there any backyard brawls that happened? I mean, I know when I was playing my bigger brother in anything, regardless whether it was tennis or whatever it was, I wanted to beat my big brother. I mean, did the parents have to come out and separate you two quite a bit? (laughs) Every day. Every day. Every day. I I,
1: I really think it's anything. So my sisters also played on the tour. Uh, One of the things, probably the, the biggest thing I'm most proud of in my career is that all four of us, Played in the main draw of the, I
2: think it was the 96, 95 Australian Open. Wow. So my sisters and my brother, and I, and I have a distinction of playing with all of my siblings
1: in the Grand Slams, uh, singles, I'm mean, sorry, in doubles and in mixed doubles. Um, and so that that's, it was always that the tennis was our uniter, was our family's uniter, was our family game. And so I'm more proud of that. But our secret sauce was my twin sisters, like, they knife-fought each other for every point in anything in life. So there was so much competition on a daily basis. Murphy and I would rock fight each other to win a point. And I, I truly believe the secret sauce for our success was that we were competing every heartbeat for the next this, or the you know to be in the front seat, or to get this, or whatever it is. If you have a sibling, you know what that's. To beat your sibling. So when we played under pressure against somebody else, whether they were Pete Sampras or Yvonne Lendl, it was no big deal because we were used to the daily rock
0: fight that was happening just between the siblings. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you guys are all, the whole family's having success. Um, you decide to go to college. Now, with your ranking and and how, you know, you were one of the best in the world. Um, all the big schools are after you. You choose to go to USC. You're an all-American. Um, talk a little about a little bit about your experience at, at USC, and, and I'm curious. Any great battles against other future pros while you were there? Oh, played a times. Um, well, I just want to back up. The
1: reason I went to school was I was thinking about turning pro. Actually, leaning towards turning pro. Chris when I turned pro. Had a lot of success. Uh, I'd beaten Becker in 83 and 84 and he won Wimbledon in 85. Right. Edberg was in that class. So, I mean, a lot of the guys, my peer group was doing extraordinary things on the tour and at the time when I was making that decision, Arthur Ashe was the captain of the U.S. Davis Cup team and we were playing Japan in Davis Cup and he, you know, uh, gave me a call and wanted to meet with me and I really thought I was going to be chosen to play on the Davis Cup team. Um, and I was just, Phenomenal, I and mean, things are happening so fast, extraordinarily well for me, on and off the court. And he, uh, and he sat down with me, and he goes, "What are your plans?" And he took this conversation to a direction I have no idea <laughs> where it was going, because I, I thought I was just going to say, "Yeah, uh, you know, I'm ready to represent my country and David to play." And and he goes, "No, what are, what are your plans?" And I go, "Well, just play tennis," and you know, I was just, I was. I was really kind of blindsided by his question. And he goes, well, what do you plan on doing with the rest of your life? And it was, you know, you have to remember Arthur Ashe was so much bigger than a, than a tennis racket and a forehand and a backhand. He was so, he had such great vision. And it didn't matter if you were a junior or a pro or starting son of John Mackinac or little Luke Jensen. He was always trying to give me a bigger perspective. And I said, geez, you know, I just I want to play tennis, and I want to be number one in the world, and, you know, all these amazing things that all teenagers have at a high level. And he goes, uh, what are you ranked right now? I said, oh, what am I ranked? I'm number, I think I was 238 in the world, and I the PP or something like that. I won some challengers, or, you know, I, I just uh, reached the second round of the U.S. Open, singles main draw, in eighty, I think it was eighty-five and eighty, somewhere in there, eighty-five, eighty-six. So I was riding high, and uh, he goes, um, "How much does that make? How much does number two hundred whatever thirty-six make?" I said, "Jesus, I have no idea." And he goes, "To make fifteen thousand three hundred eighty-two dollars." Like <it> does? <laughs> and he does. He knew exactly. He, he just like he knew exactly what he was talking about. He said. I went to college, Connors went to college, Maximum went to college, he goes, you're very talented, but I think you should go and go to college and grow up and learn how to be on your own, learn how to balance a checkbook, learn how to, you know, time manage, all these amazing things. And he didn't tell me where to go to college. He just said he felt, in his opinion, that I should go to college and mature my game. because there's a lot of great competition there and you can still play pro tournaments while you're an amateur. And uh, I left out of there, left that meeting going in a completely different, you know, I thought I was going to be playing Davis stuff, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, I should be, Arthur Ashe just told totally me to go to college. Right. Like, I, I'm going to college. And then that that changed gears into where was the place that I was going to improve my game for professional pennies. And I went on a bunch of visits and Southern Cal was the one with Stan Smith and Dennis Ralston and my coach that really was a massive difference maker, Dick Leach, who's in the Hall of Fame, his son was playing for him already, Ricky Leach, who went on to win a bunch of plans. Um And he said, if you come here, I'll teach you how to win a grand slam. I'll teach you how to become number one in the world. And he was the only college coach that talked about pro tennis in that way. He didn't talk in his he had plenty of All-Americans. He had plenty of NCAA champions and guys who were playing pros. But there was there are four plaques that are still at the stadium. And one is for the people who went to the UFC that had won the Australian, the French, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open championships. And I wanted to be on that. He didn't show me the, you know, you saw the trophies and you saw this and that. But those were the four plaques that he showed me. He goes, I'll put you on one of these.
0: Awesome. it's tough and, to say no to that, that. Was, I mean, yeah i didn't say no to that I right mean, this is exactly where i want to go it
1: wasn't easy i did the uh i had extremely good results not extraordinary results but the biggest thing is he taught me how to really be a man and how to time manage and how to you know sleep and study and then deal with adverse situations away from home three thousand miles away from from michigan and
0: So let, let's talk about a few of those battles because I, I know you—you know—you played against a lot of future pros there. What are what are some of the ones that uh, stick out in your mind for good or for bad? <laughs>
1: And was a loss to Georgia. My sophomore year, we were thirty-two and zero, and um, I was winning my match, just setting a break, and about to go up to break, and I got distracted, started, you know, trying to trash talk with the fraternity boys in Georgia. Which is, if you ever get a chance to see a college match,
0: especially the NC two in Georgia, right? It is, it's an amazing atmosphere, and I ended up basically folding um, and, and losing that duel in that entire season, that historic season,
1: to go undefeated. Um, all on my own. But in the end, that loss gave me a toughness, gave me a focus, gave me honestly just a chip on my shoulder, never let that happen again. And I think the lessons learned in that that's a loss, we carry those losses. Example, we all have one. Every competitor has the one that got away. And I talked to great about it that has the. She's going for a tech Wimbledon singles title against Conchita Martinez. She 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 wakes up in the middle of the night, and still pissed off about it. Roger Federer will never sleep well again, knowing that he let Djokovic win Wimbledon this year.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: You go. You go. You know, all the way. You go, That distance. You have match point serving. You
0: have one right uh, up. Fifteen head. all. Fifteen all. He serves an ace. He serves another ace. Forty, fifteen. He's literally one shot away.
1: Yeah, a swing. A swing away. A swing away. No matter how many grand slams you have in your pocket, we all get nervous. We all have to face that demon. And that demon's pressure. And he will remember that for the rest of his life. No matter how many times people call him the GOAT. You know, for me, it was that you know, that college match, and I still sleep horribly because of that. I'm reminded about it all the time, but it made me tougher, made me better,
0: for Roger, better, even as great as he is that will stay with him for the rest of his life. And, and it's amazing. You know, the, the losses always stick with you longer than the bazillion wins that all these great people, yourself included, have. It's the losses that stick with you. And, you know, I had Michael Russell on about, we, we were in Del Rey for that 250 tournament last February. And he talked about a match and it was in the juniors. And he lost the match. It was It was an important match at the time. Obviously, it's all relative. But at that time, it was an important match. And he lost... Because he wasn't fit enough. He felt he was the better skilled player. The only reason why he lost was because of fitness. And you know Michael Russell. That guy is fit as, that guy's a monster. I mean, in the gym, he's crazy fit. And he said, kind of what you said, that loss changed his career for the better. So you're going to have these killer losses. But if you could do something with those losses and make good of it, it can change your life.
1: I, mean, I I really think that's really what separates, you know, where people go. You don't run out of talent if you want to be a world-class player. If you want to be a pro, if you want to play in the grand slam, if you want to win a grand slam. It's not about talent. It's part of it. But in the end, at some point, you lose the desire to do the sacrifice and takes, the suffering you're going to have to go through and all the dedication, all the things, has nothing to do with forehands and backhands and how, how sweet you hit the ball. It's how much pain are you really willing to go through to get through that. And that's the pain of losses, the pain of being away from home, the pain of, you know, how many relationships get destroyed because you're never home uh, living on the road and you're just chasing that dream. Yep. It, it's the persistence that gets you through it. And more people end up quitting because... Not because they're not good enough. It's because it's time for them to move on. I mean, they're done being on the court and in the gym and doing whatever it takes um, for eight hours, six to eight hours a day, every day. There are no days off. Yeah. It's fine. And so the uh, it's much right Every I mean, if you succeed in this game, it's because you You have a lot of scar tissue, and remember every single one of those losses that propel you into the gym again. They get you back on the track. They get you back on the practice court. hitting more serves because that that one serve didn't hit its spot, didn't hit the cone, didn't hit the target. That forehand shank instead of hit right in the middle of a sweet spot. And you just do it over and over again. It's, It's such an easy formula,
0: but it's so hard to follow through with the commitment to it. Such great advice and I hope all the kids who listen to this take that in. That is so great. Uh, thank you for sharing that and, and you know we're going to talk about your pro career next but before we do that you know we've, we, we're obviously talking to you we've mentioned your brother Murphy you've had two sisters you also mentioned they also played in pro tour but you know, shout out Rebecca Jensen. You know, I went to the University of Kansas. She was an All American, won the NCAA. So I know we're talking USC, but we got to give a shout out to my Jayhawks. Is that cool? Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
1: let's wave the week, baby.
0: <laughs> the let's go. You know it all. That's great. So, um, okay, let's kind of talk about.
1: That program's going right now. That I, I indoor you know facility is back
0: at the night. Awesome. I was just there this past March. Um, seeing them two wins and then they won the Big 12. They almost beat Stanford in the NCAA. They lost 4-3. They uh it was such a good match in the round of 16, but yeah, that program uh you know, doing well doing well, so we're happy about that. Okay. Let's talk about your pro career. All right. You you had two successful years in college. You're ready to go on tour. You're playing a little bit with your brother. Um, should we start with the Should we start with the French Open doubles run, or should we maybe lead up to it? And uh, you know, talk, you just generally talk about what it was like going on the Pro Tour.
1: Yeah, I was I'm two and a half years older than Murphy, so I was out there. Uh, I turned pro in '87. Murphy entered school at Southern Cal in '88, so we didn't overlap. You know, when I left, he entered for two years at SC, and then he actually went to Georgia in '90. Uh, for one year, and then it was time for him to turn pro. So I had already gotten a number of years on the circuit. I'd I gone through the, the battles of the, the challengers and the futures and the satellite and kind of worked my way to a top 10 career and, um, in doubles. And uh, it was just kind of always in the back of my mind when Murphy kind of turned pro and worked his way up the rankings to about top 100 that we were going to do it. And it Um, and so it was It was just a great opportunity when he popped in the top 100 at the end of 92 that 93 was going to be our year. And we started in um, Goa, Qatar, and we went to Sydney after that and played the Australian Open. And we we're having kind of an up and down season. Um, we had some good wins, some good tournaments, and then we'd go on a, a dry patch. And I remember leading, going into the. Uh, the German Open, and it was in Hamburg, and we'd lost another tough three setter, and it's cold and it's rainy, and we have some opportunity, but it was our eighth tournament in a row where we'd lost. And you start going eight tournaments in a row, each tournament's one week. I mean, you're looking over two months, right. uh, two and a half months of losing. And I'm, I'm, I had reached the quarters of the French Open the year before, uh, I think the semis or finals of the Italian. Uh, and that would the next week. So I was about to. You know, looking really, as a pro player, you have to remember, you have the GOATs. And they're not worried about points, and they're not worried about money, because they all got tons of that stuff. But the rest of the tour, you're always looking at defending your points. And when you're looking at the finals of the Italian and then the French, and I won a a warm-up tournament in between there in Bologna. So I had like three tournaments in a row that was kind of like I was about to fall into the abyss. And Murphy was really worried about it. He goes, man, you're a top-ten player going to the World Championships the last few years. I, you know, I don't want to hold you back from your career and everything, you know. We just have a, we all have a defining moment. And I said, I don't care if we're playing satellites again and we're in South America or South Africa and we're playing, we're going to play as a team. It's always been our dream. And I believe in you and, you know, we're going to turn this thing around. We just got to work harder and, you know, get the right shots at the right times. But we're not not—we're not breaking up. We're not quitting. And our thing is we grew up where our parents really instilled in us, Jensen's never quit. That was kind of our mantra. And um, and so the next week, we got an Italian Open, and we beat the defending French Open champions, who were the number one
2: seed
1: at the Italian Open that year, Rosset um, and uh, Lassick. And beat them in three sets. And, you know, there was a big, you know, it was a really tight match, but we toughed that out. That was the first win in over eight weeks. And that really kind of springboarded, like, the confidence and the momentum. we got to the semis of the Italian Open, finals of Bologna, and then went right into the French Open.
0: Yeah, yeah, let me set this up. Let me set this up, because this is is pretty incredible. So you already said you were unseated. Um, You go in there, French Open. Now, this is not something where you just kind of smoked everybody. I mean, and and you'll go into a little detail, but first round, your match points from being eliminated. Second round, match points from being eliminated. The third round. The first round, here's, here's the one thing in the first round.
1: On the match point, I returned. I was playing the ad side with Murphy at the time. And I broke a string on the return. The volley came back to me. And you know, if you break a string, you make a decision. Do I go for it or do I just throw up a lob and kind of bluff it? And so I went for it. And I had the old, back then, I used to use the pro Blend, that Kevlar bulletproof string. Do you remember that? there was the yeah. First pro blend. yeah, It was great. So if you broke a string, it held tension. <laughs> and so I basically broke this string and I just let a rip and ended up hitting a winner
0: and saving that match point or if that ball skies out we're not even talking today <laughs> so you survive that the second round hey you down match points again no problem survive that one um the third round I think you're down you're down you're not match points down, but you're a game away. I mean and you're still surviving. Are you at a point where you're looking at Murphy and you're saying, like, Do you believe this? I mean we're just this is play this is this is I don't know if it's destiny or let's just let it fly because we've survived enough deaths here. Let's let it go, man. Let's just roll. Well in the
1: third round we were down five three. And Murphy and I were fighting with each other. And it was kind of typical for us. We would fight with our opponents. We'd fight with the umpire. And we would fight with each other. It just, we were, there was always, there was something going on when the Jensen's play. 40 minutes. You know, I'm going to get on the court. It'll take us about 10 minutes. <laughs> and kind of got us, kind of situated like a good mom does. Get, get the kids organized and focused. And we went out and came back and broke. And so I would say we felt we were a team of destiny. But um, that that conversation was had in the in the finals when we were up a set and lost the tiebreaker to lose the second set. And Murphy was distraught. He was he was really bucked it up. On that changeover going into the third set. And I said, you know, we haven't lost anything. We've been down every one of these matches except for the semis where we beat Edward and Quarter in two tiebreakers. Um, and then every other match was three sets and we were down. So this thing is far from over. We got down 3 0 in the third and uh, we somehow came back and won. And, you know, there's a lot into that third set too. But the most important thing service game I ever played was 0-3, and I remember specifically going up to the line
2: going, if I lose this service game, like, we've lost the title, Right. and so I never felt in my life that I ever had to win a match, except for that match, wow. because you never know if you'll
1: ever get back there again, and we never did. We, I mean, we got to a couple of finals and mixed doubles in 96, but in the as men's doubles, I never got back there again, but it was the only match where if we don't win this, a sense of urgency was just overwhelming. And to hold to get the three-one,
0: break the three-two, and just start running from there— incredible, incredible. Um, so cool to, to for you to share all that with everyone. That that's so so awesome. Hey, for those that haven't watched. Uh, the- back from 3 down, he goes, whatever you do, don't hurt me in the celebration. Yep. And so so we have the double call, we haven't won anything, so we finally win this thing, I go to hug him, and I accidentally break his jaw with a forearm. You know, I heard, we talked about this earlier, I heard your brother speak at a conference, you were also in attendance there, and he shared that story, unbelievable, you broke his jaw in celebration. Yeah, it's great,
1: it's, great. it's great. I honestly really bad about it to this day because his jaw doesn't, he's had surgery and everything. It's <laughs> never been the same. But it's the greatest, like one of the greatest stories. You know, think of Pat Cash going up into the stands in 1986. Right, see all these great celebrations when you win a slam. We have the most unique. Celebration
0: in the history of Grand Slam, yeah. I, yeah, I don't think that's uh, hopefully, that doesn't have to be um, repeated by anyone else because that's that that hurts. <laughs> that hurts. <Right. laughs> hey, so for those that haven't actually, the Pride Brothers broke a rib on a chest bump, but did I they? Think it was after winning anything, yeah, they told me like the chest bump
1: can get really.
0: That's so crazy. So crazy. So, hey, I want to talk a little bit about your style of play. And for those who haven't seen Luke, go check out the videos online. You'll see it on YouTube, any, anywhere. Go check it out because, um, you know, you're nick, you're, you had a nickname, Dual Hand Luke. You were able to serve 130 either hand. Um, you know, I had a little experience with that. I actually coached a, a very good kid on my team. He, he played USTA Nats three years in a row. He served lefty. He hit overheads righty or lefty, and he hit every shot, but he, but he hit every other shot righty. So he served lefty, played righty, except for overheads, he, he, he hit every, uh, you know, either hand. He never had to hit what I think is the toughest shot in tennis, a, back, a high backhand overhead. Pretty incredible. How'd that all why, come about? Why
1: didn't he serve righty? Why didn't he serve righty?
0: It just was natural for him, for some reason, to serve lefty. And he never was natural wow. for him to serve righty. How'd, how'd that all like start with you?
1: Yeah, I, honestly, so there's, there's a my personal theory is my dad was coaching high school tennis, and across the street was the local junior high and a and a wall, and it all all great players, um and anybody who plays this game ha, has used the wall to great effect, and I, I believe the backboard is the greatest feature more than any coach more than anything.
0: Those were heavy because those rackets were heavy too. (laughs)
1: coach at the time and my dad saw and you know, knew that I could throw a football really well left-handed um, and so I had that natural motion and at the time in the late message you have Connors left-handed you have Waver in the mix Elias Navratilova um, and Johnny Mack coming yeah. through
0: Johnny Mac and was the, the four
1: of the five top players in the world were left-handed so you're thinking like the games with all the advantages that lefties have in ad scoring tennis, 15 30, 30 15, you know, 40 30, 30 40. That's a huge advantage for the Dow. It's a huge advantage for Navatolova, for anybody who's dominating those big rivalries. You know, that's a great advantage of, you know, Machino being board. That's a great matchup for a lefty in ad scoring tennis. So yep. just developing the, the lefty serve was huge
0: for me. And then, as you said, I believe the big secret was getting at the net and then lob over my backhand side, right? I went from a defensive high backhand volley to an offensive left-handed overhead. Right, <laughs> right, for sure. That, that's crazy cool. So let's kind of talk about your post-playing career. I touched on it on the in the intro. I mean, my gosh, you, what haven't you done? Right? What haven't you done in the sport? You've been on. You've been an analyst on television. You've coached a college team for over seven years. You've been involved in world team tennis. Now, I mean, you're the current head coach of the New York Empire. Your brother is a is a legend in world team tennis, so you got a lot of work to do to to touch what he's done. Um, world titles, yeah. I was
1: so jealous of him all the time because he got to work with Venus and Serena and Angus and all these future hall of famers and he had so much fun and you know, playing it with a blast. I love the the concept we're actually meeting with world team tennis. Um, tomorrow uh, we're mainly a little to put it at my club it had a stint there a couple of years ago but we're looking to, to bring it back to the Westside Tennis Club and um, I love coaching I mean the coach I mean I had a this year alone Isner Sloan Stevens Marty um, Fish is our Davis Cup captain and, and your Kirsten Slipkins and Neil Skupski and Maria Jose uh, Sanchez uh, it's just—it's amazing to be back with that mindset. And you know, your coaching—I'm telling you, playing it and coaching it at that level is just so much fun because they understand the work ethic, they understand the pressure. They've reached a high level on the on the world stage. You're know, on the planet. It's just the best high school, college, or you know, just a good. People, you know, I mean, they're winning millions of dollars, and you're you're helping them navigate, you know, fifteen thirty, or you're helping them navigate pressure situations. It was just, it's fun.
0: How great is that? How great is that?
1: (laughs) Ha ha ha!
0: Cool. I, I mean, it's it, yeah. I mean, and you have the personality to a T to fit that energy because that's what that world team tennis says—so much energy—and you're out there rocking and rolling. It's great. Um, I mean, you're, you're again—we we touched on at the beginning—you're the director of racket sport uh, at the Westside Tennis Club. Right. You've done everything. What I mean, what is it that this sport does? That every morning, you know, you get up out of bed, you are so fired up and, and ready to go in, in whatever role it may be, because you've done it all, Luke. I Honestly, I, I love seeing people get better. I mean, I've been working with the sea the ladies team, right? <laughs> I mean, I love it.
1: It's, it's like my jam, teaching them a the drop shot. And I, I, we start with little dink shots. You know, just the catch and release. We catch the ball and take energy out of the ball. Just teaching them how to try to get a touch shot or a drop volley or an angle, And you see their eyes, like, holy cow, I can actually do this. Um, it's just phenomenal to me. When, when you connect with a player at any level, whether it's, you know, the, the people that are playing in the Grand Slam or the players that watch the Grand Slam on TV and can't get water from a boat, you get them just one stroke better. You get them, you know, a second serve that can be reliable. or Teach them the continental grip. I'm absolutely like so invested into game improvement and being a lifelong learner. I mean, I watch more YouTube videos, more. I mean, I'm, right now I'm locked in on a match, D-Lander, 1982 match with Jose Luis Clark. Right. That I gotta. and I'm just studying <laughs> errors and winners and placement and we have this thing that's sewing the pro-development with kids on consistency mm-hmm. and we have the thousand ball challenge where you have to get a
0: that I mean there's no better way to, to close other than say the sport of tennis is very very lucky to have you and your family as involved as you all are because um, you guys have given a tremendous amount uh, of your time and your passion and your love for the game um, to this great game and the sport of tennis is extremely extremely lucky to have you, your brother, your sisters, and again, leave it to mom and dad to get, to get started. So huge credit to, to the whole Jensen family. And, you know, Luke, we're, we're approaching 45 minutes and you've been so kind to, to take time out of your evening to share your journey um, with us. I just want to thank you so, so much and, and wish you the best of luck and, and keep rocking and rolling, man. The energy is the best. It's just the best. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Luke. So there you have it. Luke Jensen. What a great guest to have. Courtside with Beelinson podcast. Courtside with Bielenson tennis. Again, Luke Jensen. um, We're privileged to have him on and he's got so many great stories that he was able to share with us and hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you very much.